0: Hi, this is Doc Stoll, and welcome to New Books and Jazz. I'm one of the over 100 volunteers on the New Books Network. If you enjoy these interviews, I encourage you to click on the link that says Donate to NBN. And whether you can contribute or not, Thank you for listening to the network. Today I'll be speaking with Gabriel Solis, who will be talking about his new book, Thelonious Monk Quartet with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall, published by Oxford University Press 2013. The book is a highly readable and provocative analysis of a remarkable live recording of two iconic figures in jazz, Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. The concert tape from their 1957 Carnegie Hall performance, discovered accidentally almost 50 years after it took place, was released in 2005 by Blue Note Records. It is a bright, shining moment in the lives of two genius musician artists at different points in their careers the already established Monk and an emerging, burgeoning John Coltrane. A musical and cultural analysis of the players, the music, and the times, Solis' book is rich in insight and a delight to read and ponder, an enriching testament to one of the important recordings in all of jazz. Uh, Gabriel, welcome to New Books in Jazz, and really, really enjoyed your book. What a historic concert and a serendipitous event, and looking forward to hearing all about it.
1: Well, Doc, thanks so much, and thanks for having me uh, on for this. And I'm really delighted uh, to, to share some information about the book, and, and just... Uh, hope people you know get a chance to look at it and, and get
0: something out of it. Well, I I, I think they will. I, I certainly did. I was driving up through the redwood country yesterday, and I listened to a, a CD of that concert again. And in in many ways, it's uh it's kind of a church service uh, after you read about it. It's it's something to really reflect uh, reflect upon. I think it'll give people kind of a lifetime of joy of just appreciating it. But but first, tell us about you, where you grew up, and what your interests were, how you came to jazz, and your current position right now?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in California in um, in the Central Valley, so not far from the Redwood Country, but uh, not quite in it, uh, in the city of Modesto. Um, and I was introduced actually really early to jazz. Um, my parents weren't jazz listeners so much as they were um, kind of came up in the in the '60s in the the uh, you know San Francisco scene, so a lot of blues and and rock um, music. But they had a friend um, who actually is the person I dedicated the book to. So um, you'll see a read on the dedication page is for for Mel Williams, my jazz guru, DJ, activist, and tenor saxophonist extraordinaire, who taught me to love Monk and Train when I was a kid. Um, and Mel was, Mel worked with my father and was also a, a local kind of jazz figure in, in Modesto. He ran a, um, concert series to benefit, um, as a, a benefit for, for sickle cell anemia research and had a, t- a radio show playing jazz on, um, the NPR station out of the university of the Pacific in, Sac- in Stockton, California, um, called, uh, the world of Mel Williams. And, Mel turned me on to the music. He he played tenor sax, and I chose to play tenor sax because he did, and I we would play together sometimes. He would take the time. It was really sweet. He would take the time to just sit and play tunes with me. So I got to learn a lot of that music that way, and then he would share records with me. Um, and he was one of the first person who really pointed me in the direction uh, of Monk, especially, but also Coltrane. Um, and he was one of the people who really pushed me to hear their music as outgrowths of the blues. Um, he always maintained that that's the, you know, that's a really important context for that that music. So that was how I came to, to first get involved with jazz, really in, in junior high and and then into high school. Um, I studied uh, at the at San Francisco State briefly, and then at the University of Wisconsin for a bachelor's degree in music and then got my PhD at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, where I, I focused on, on a jazz topic. Um, and then, um, now I work at the university of Illinois. I'm an associate professor here, so I've, I've been tenured for a few years and, um, my first book was on the kind of, um, the performances of Thawnex Monk's music by other people focusing mostly on the period after his death, so in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, um, looking at, at the ways that jazz performance is a kind of exercise of memory um, in action, so to speak, or history in action. Uh, and then this book was was an attempt to really dig deep into this, this musical collaboration between Monk and Coltrane, um, something that that I've always thought was, was among the most important, you know, points of connection really of any two musicians in, in modern jazz. Um, and, but something that was relatively underdocumented um, on recordings. Uh, and I I guess also just this recording is so good. (laughs) There's so much great stuff going on in it. It was for me at least really worthwhile to spend some, some deep time with it.
0: I want to talk about all of that. I'm interested too that your book, as far and the whole Oxford Studies in Recorded Jazz, is is kind of a multidisciplinary approach because you do close readings of the individual pieces, but you also put them in all kinds of historical contexts. And I I think that's why uh, this series uh, and your book in particular is, is so interesting because there's so many different ways to look at it. And so, so anybody is bound to get uh, something from your book because there are just so many ways to, to look at it in the historical context, even if you don't have music training, it is absolutely fascinating on its own.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's cool. I mean, I guess I think this was part of uh, the idea when the, the the series was proposed, and um, I really tried to run with it. You know, I, 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 it's very seldom that I get asked as a writer to to do close readings um, in this way, just because it does limit the numbers of people who can really read uh, and get a lot out of it. But I liked the idea that. If that's there for people who, who want that and who can kind of come to terms with that kind of material, but that, that I was encouraged to, you know, by the press to do that and to also try to put it in these other contexts. I'm, i and I, I think it's really rich, this particular recording. There's lots of other good recordings I could have written about that also are rich, but I think this is a really nice one just because um, it has these two different contexts because it has the live performance as one thing to really think about historically and, you know, what what that was and how it came to happen and so forth. But then also the fact that the recording wasn't released until um, 2005. In fact, people didn't even know it, didn't know and knew for sure that it existed until uh, they found it um, shortly before its release. Uh, that means that there's also this more kind of contemporary context for it. And I hope that makes it, it, you know, uh, uh, relevant. I certainly think it is.
0: Okay, so I've, let's let's start there because I actually have a question right at the beginning. Here is this concert, and you have a lot of famous people on this concert bill and then it disappears for almost a half a century. And what was interesting to me was that all the other people who played with them as well, it was like an all-star hall of fame, including Ray Charles, right? But so tell the listeners what was the setting for this uh, benefit concert? Who was on the bill? And then how did this thing get discovered almost a half a century later with Monk and Coltrane?
1: Sure. I mean, it's a crazy story, right? this benefit concert is a little bit early in the history of jazz benefit concerts in a sense, right? It becomes benefit concerts really sort of become the thing in the 1960s um, as the civil rights movement is, is kind of heating up. Um, you get a lot of benefit concerts at that period and jazz musicians are tapped routinely uh, to play on those concerts. And a lot of them do choose to play on the concerts at that time as a way of you know, signaling their commitment and, and doing something meaningful for the movement. Um, this is a little bit earlier than that, and it, it was for um, the Morning, Morningside Community Center, uh, which was an, uh, a, you know, a community center in, in uptown Manhattan um, in Morningside Heights, which is um, kind of on the edge of, of Harlem, um, that did, you know, educational and kind of... Um, at sort of after-school programming for uh, young kids in the neighborhood. Um, therefore also ran a summer camp and did a variety of things. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy was, was involved in some way with it, did some appearances for it. So they had some high-profile um, uh, supporters and backers. Um, and uh, the benefit concert was organized you know, to raise money for their programming. Monk seemed to be... He didn't simply do it because it was a concert. I mean, he, he seemed committed to the idea of this um, this particular organization. Um, and I know less about how everybody else became involved with the concert, um, in part because, you know, my, my focus for the, for the book really was on the album. Um, and, and as you'll know, none of the other... Stats from that concert have been released as um, albums, and in some ways, because this is the most sort of particularly historically interesting of them. Um, The rest of them, people who played, were people who who've been, you know, widely documented. Um, So I I didn't look as much into how is it that the other people got involved, but but at any rate, the concert was. A pretty remarkable collection of musicians, but I also, as I say in the book, um, these kinds of all-star sort of benefits were not totally unheard of, and they became commonplace, uh, so that um, if you lived in New York in the late 50s, the chances that you could have gone to a show that had this kind of range of people on it um, were not totally out of you know, this is not a unique one one-time opportunity, but but it had some really remarkable people. So it had Monk and, uh, and the Coltrane uh, group, uh, who were not the, necessarily the top bill by any means on this this set. Um, they were probably a, a, a somewhat niche kind of jazz um, interest. Ray Charles was was probably one of the higher um act on it he was there playing a jazz set mostly so that this is a a a moment in his career actually where he's kind of um extending he had a lot of r&b hits um coming back to the late 40s 1948 i think is his first um charting single Uh, i might be wrong about that off the top of my head at any rate he's he'd been he'd been visible for about a decade by then um but as an R and B musician, but he also was a, a, he was interested in playing jazz piano. He wasn't perhaps a jazz pianist at the same level as as you know a Bud Powell or a Thelonious Monk, but but he was certainly very credible. So he had his dad do that. They did play some more R and B oriented numbers, but it was a kind of a jazz set. Um, and then Dizzy Gillespie's orchestra was on the bill. Um, Billy Holiday was on the bill. Uh, she probably would also have been one of the highest. Um, Highest bill simply because she would have had the largest audience. Um, Zoot Sims was playing on the bill, and there was a it was um, uh, the kind of lowest billing. So the and introducing uh, billing went to um, Sonny Rollins. So you have a kind of range of both older and younger musicians. You have a range of musicians associated really strongly with New York and others who are, who are associated with other parts of the country, on um, West Coast type players, you have a range uh, from fairly pop to uh, relatively avant-garde for the time. Um, so it's a real smorgasbord. I think it's nice, in a sense, to imagine also that that means there was an audience in New York at the time that really would have seen these types of music, not as something distinct from one another necessarily, but as kind of potentially all part of one one thing that you could hear those all on one set and that wouldn't seem weird um, or, or or you know out of place. Um, I think we now kind of often see these different types of, of jazz and see jazz and pop uh, as kind of separate from one another. But but actually, my sense is that at the time, you know, this was a bill that would have would have been would have made sense. To audiences.
0: I think you did a, a good job because you, you use the word separate in, in your book that in some ways, I know it's an overused phrase and you, you talk about it, it was in some ways a golden age, age of jazz and I think I don't, I'm paraphrasing your own book here, but before jazz had separated from pop and that the recording technology uh, had, to, had grown in leaps and bounds and so in many ways as you said people would come to expect people like this. And jazz was big. And you were getting tremendous innovations from all of the the different people you mentioned and and many more.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, it's worth worth thinking about the fact that Monk was on the cover of Time around this, you know, period. Um, These were not... Jazz was not... And who's Bill Gillis the TV show. You know, the character Maynard G. Krebs... Was a Thelonious Monk fan, uh, so in the really in the, the mainstream of pop culture in America, or um, yeah, maybe slightly intellectual pop culture, but but pop culture in America, jazz was present and visible, and I think yeah, there's there's a, a sense of a range of of, of um, people who are really interested too, and listening to jazz as pop music. So I don't know if it's in this book, but I. I Elsewhere, I think I've, I've said something about, like, you can go back to the variety, um, the, the industry paper, and see advertisements for, you know, Monk and Miles Davis playing at the Apollo Theater in Harlem on a, you know, on a bill that includes, like, a comedian and a contortionist and, you know, like, who knows, and whatever kinds of, like, just broad variety entertainment. Um, jazz was, was part of that landscape.
0: So we're setting the scene here and I want to quote from your book about Coltrane because I found this so interesting. You're quoting Porter and you say on page 31 of your book, Porter clearly shows that Coltrane did not develop in isolation nor come into the musical world fully formed. Rather he was, quote, a normal person growing and developing in a fortunately inspired circle of musicians and, this is what I found so fascinating, few of his Philadelphia colleagues remember him as having that touch of genius. And I thought that was so interesting because as you said, you know, Monk was already kind of accepted as a, not quite a jazz icon, but as somebody who was really an innovator. But you think of Coltrane in such reverential terms and yet Mm. I thought that was so interesting because uh, as as you stated in your book, these sessions that Coltrane did with Monk before they did the Morningside benefit when you finally got these recordings that Monk gave Coltrane a chance to grow and to expand and little did anyone know that he would be kind of the revered icon that he is is today
1: yeah and i mean i should i should probably clarify just a little bit that Porter's really talking about there he's talking about the period when when you know, Coltrane was like in his teens in Philadelphia before he went into the military, you know. But, but even after he came out of the military where he's still basically like a, a really good R&B you know, tenor player and hadn't you know, kind of hit that thing. So yeah, we, I think we think about Coltrane, I think about Coltrane at least, and I really have that, that period of his solo work in mind for so like, you know, Giant Steps and um, uh, uh, my favorite things and, you know, especially like I Love Supreme and these really massive works and the, the far out stuff, you know, home and, um, and, and, you know, Ascension and like, you know, interstellar space, these kinds of things that are like really at the very sort of leading edge of pushing the envelope on on virtuosity and pushing the envelope on, you know, taking creative chances and all this kind of stuff. But actually, if you pull back to this period before, you know, this earlier period, he's he's a really good tenor player who's doing creative, interesting work. But it's not at that same kind of kind of thing. And that that actually the relationship to Monk, you know, it does seem I mean, it's not the only thing, but it does seem to have been an important moment for Coltrane to really like expand his his view of like what he could do and what the music could be, um, you know, certainly his time with Miles Davis was important, too, and there's no question about that. but but this this relationship seems to have been really, really important um, for him for sure.
0: So, talk about the quartet then, and then maybe take the listeners through a little bit about their kind of collaboration together, and the fact that they had actually collaborated together before they did this concert. So in some ways, although unbeknownst to them, this was kind of, in a a sense, a culmination, even though they didn't know it at the time. But what we're listening to is is actually these, these players had played together before. And now they're playing yeah. in this concert format, and so you're getting this this record frozen in time of them, where they're really maybe they're stretching out, maybe they're not, but they've definitely played together now, and you're you're seeing some some really unusual things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was Monk's working band at the time, and that is is very distinctive. It was more common at the in the you know in the. 50s to have a working band than it is now for a, a, a really important leader. But it was also, mean, Monk really likes to work with the same people day in and day out. So this band, which was Monk on piano and Coltrane on tenor, uh, and then had Ahmed Abdul Malik on um, bass and Shadow Wilson on drums. The bass and drum chairs um, changed some over time, so Wilbur Ware also played in that band. Uh, at times, and, and Roy Haynes, um, took over the drums, uh, shortly, kind of shortly after that. Um, and so there's a certain amount of shifting going on, and, and, and over the, over the years, Monk sort of swapped out the, the, the bass and drum chairs. But, but this band was, yeah, it was a working band. They played, um, night in and night out for months leading up to this concert, in fact. Um, they, were, they had a schedule of like five nights a week playing um, so they had a lot of experience together um, and I think that you can you can hear that, right? You can hear the ways in which um, they've come to know each other, they can kind of I think probably come to expect certain kind of musical gestures um, they kind of have a sense of you know how many choruses is this going to go? How long, you know, how long will it take? Probably, you know, what actual melodies will, will Coltrane play when he's soloing and what kinds of things will Monk choose to do in comping and will he choose to do in soloing? And that, you know, how can, how for Coltrane, you know, what could he expect the drummer to do? What could he expect the bass player to do to support him um, while he's playing? So that, that really you get that sense of a, of a, a group that knows each other. And um, they don't just know the tunes. Of course, they do know the tunes, but they know each other and how they play them. Um, it would be it would be really nice if, if, you know, they had done some some recordings in, in, a, in a club, right? So at the Five Spot, for instance, um, where you could have heard uh, how they sounded in that setting because it's possible that it would have been somewhat different. They would have probably had a little bit longer of sets uh, the concert setting, especially because we have so many bands to get through the set, took so, so, fairly short um, but but also you know monk played the same tunes over and over again, so that band would have not just played together night in and night out, but they would have played the same songs night in and night out. They' probably played all of the songs that are on this recording um regularly in in their in their um club sets. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's certainly an interesting thing. The guys, the, the other guys in the band are also really interesting as far as that goes. Ahmed um, Abu malik had grown up in a North African, um, Sudanese uh, community in it's uh, Brooklyn, um, and was also a, a very competent, very accomplished player of the oud, which is a, a Middle Eastern... Um, uh, instrument kind of like a lute and he actually recorded some, some, made some recordings on that instrument as well so he had this whole kind of African background um, that was important and uh, Shadow Wilson had played with Monk off and on for years and years and years and, and to me is one of the sort of great um, drummers who's maybe a little bit under um, but just not not super visible, um, you know, in terms of jazz history, people don't necessarily know who he was, but but he was a, a great player um, and had this
0: this history of relationship with
1: with Monk and generally with sort of bebop and modern jazz. So I don't know if that answered yeah. your whole question.
0: Yeah, well, just I, I thought, yeah, that, that, that I didn't know that, um, but you you mentioned that that you know those two guys were really important in terms of the, the foundation for this recording. What, what do we know about Monk and Coltrane from having found and listened to this recording that we didn't know before? What hmm. did you find? Yeah.
1: No, that's a good question. I mean, I think I'm not sure there's a, a, a a thing we now, we can say like, oh, you know, I hadn't, I had no idea. But I do think we have a much clearer picture of um, how this relationship affected their development. So for me, I mean, I I think and you can really hear Coltrane in the, in the recordings that sort of surround this recording. You can hear him moving from a pretty... I don't know, conventional hard bop, post-bop style. Um, I don't mean conventional in a bad way, I think, you know, but, but, but it, you know, he's a very good tenor player playing pretty standard hard bop um, at, to somebody who has a truly unique individual voice and the, the thing that gets called sheets of sound where he's, he's kind of really exploring you know, how much can you fill up the sort of space musically? And I think this recording is the best documented evidence I've ever heard of him right in the middle of those two things. So you can hear him playing fairly kind of standard hard bop material, and you can hear him starting to work with this sort of sheets of sound Concept or sound concept. Um, You can also really hear him picking up on a thing Monk does, which is a kind of motivic improvisation where you take bits from the tune itself and use those, you sort of manipulate those bits in order to make an, uh, an improvisation, an improvised solo out of it. You can kind of hear him doing that in a way that I think you don't hear him do a lot in the earlier work. And that I think is really characteristic actually of the later work. I think it's not something that I'm not sure that that people have written about Coltrane have really written about him in this way. Um, And he, he, he does it. He does so much else so spectacularly that I'm not sure it's the most important thing about his playing, but it is something that becomes, I think you really hear it in his playing after this. So you can hear him really learning, (laughs) if you will, from Monk, and this recording kind of so, so clearly shows that sort of stage in between before and after. Th- to me, that's really great. In um, Monk, I think what you what you kind of come to is maybe a sense, a, a, a clearer and, and deeper picture of the ways that um, he operated as a band leader. So being able to compare Monk's work on this recording, with with Coltrane versus his work um, later with Johnny Griffin or with um, Charlie Rouse uh, or before with with um, Sonny Rollins, gives a you know you can actually hear I think him giving each of them slightly different stuff um, and sort of making space for them to develop a voice for them to be to to be. Um, you know, really clearly individualized in the context of his music. Um, and for me, that's that's also, I mean, I'm not sure I think that's something that's brand new. I sort of knew that about Monk already, and I think a lot of people who, who you know, care about Monk sort of know that. But this really dramatizes that because you can hear him giving Coltrane thing prompts, if you will, musical prompts that help him be, help him develop in this way Um, so for me it's really about about hearing Monk as a band leader in this kind of context
0: yeah Uh, another question just came to me while you were speaking there Gabriel, Uh, I don't recall reading this uh, and maybe you commented on this but Mm -hmm. in the work you did around this particular book did Coltrane or Monk comment themselves about what you just said about how Coltrane himself developed as a player or did monk as a band leader, are these kind of historical inferences that you're drawing being kind of a, a detective here and going back and piecing this together?
1: Uh, So I think I talk about it in the book. If I didn't, I should have. Um, Monk doesn't say much about it. Monk's, Monk's a notoriously kind of difficult interview subject um, frankly. And so, uh, you know, what he does talk about, he often talks about in fairly obscure ways, um, kind of cryptic statements. Um, and, and also though, I think people didn't really ask him very much about this, which is funny because I now think like, yeah, he's a great composer and he was a brilliant piano player, but, but actually like, he was a really important band leader. Um, And, you know, that that I think wasn't something that people necessarily thought of in terms of, like, what would you ask Monk if you had a chance to interview him? So he doesn't have much to say about that.
0: What did Coltrane say about his experiences with Monk?
1: People who've written about Coltrane have written about these statements that Coltrane's made a number of times. And I think they've routinely sort of thrown up their hands and said, well, it's hard to know exactly what. Coltrane got from playing with Monk, and and actually, my sense is if you listen to these recordings, it's not that hard to hear. Just in terms of purely sort of tactical musical stuff, you can hear him learning from from playing with Monk in these recordings. Um, in, in addition to some of the larger order order things about like freedom and individuality and being yourself, which I think a lot of people learned from Monk. I mean, something Monk was. This is one way in which Monk was a, a strong kind of um, model. Just because he was so unrelentingly unique.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Unrelentingly unique. Uh, we should all aspire to that, I think. Exactly. I mean, unrelentingly, totally. Unrelentingly <laughs> unique. I like that. In, in your uh, in your classes, uh, when you, I, I assume that you uh, you incorporate this in your teaching. Is there one particular piece from that concert that that you lean to in terms of illustrations you want to make about how they collaborated together? Would there be one that you might point out if someone were to look at one piece and do a, a close reading would, would there be a recommendation there?
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, um, I've used, uh, a handful of them in teaching. Actually. Um, I, I've, use the, the recording of Sweet and Lovely a lot um, mostly because I think it's such a strong example of how the whole band is working together to make the, the big kind of large scale shape of that piece not just the individual solos but the whole piece from beginning to end has such a striking kind of form to it um, so I use that one pretty regularly uh, and um, I've I've um, used the recordings of epistrophe uh, also to to look at sort of how does, um, how does that thing sound, you know, twice in one evening and what are they doing? That's slightly different um, each time. It's a little tricky because the solos uh, are only, uh, um, we're only recorded on one of them. So one of them is a partial take, uh, even though they played the whole take in in the evening. Um, but I also think, I mean, Monk's Mood, I haven't ever taught it, but I think Monk's Mood is a, is a really nice one, actually, just because um, they don't, there is no improvised solo on it, but, but you can really listen for the ways that um, the two, especially Monk and Coltrane, are just really subtly listening to each other, responding to each other um, in in playing that over and over again and you can compare it with their own recording of it um, from slightly earlier that's on the album um, Colonial Month with John Coltrane I think oh maybe it's on a different album uh, I'd have to look it up which album that was released on sorry um, at any rate uh, so that's that's a nice one because they played it together elsewhere and so it's in terms of just like a teaching example, um, there's some nice material to work with there.
0: I wanted to get to this a little later, but maybe it's a a good intro right now, and that is the the context of this concert and having it be released almost a half a century later, and you have a really interesting section in there where you talk about the notion of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I just found that just fascinating. Uh, where you kind of ruminate on, uh, you know, kind of, you know, where was jazz then? Where is jazz now? What does this recording mean now? Is it the province of academia because the club scene isn't the way it was? You kind of look at it from a lot of different perspectives. What what was your point in in discussing this whole idea of nostalgia?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess... One of the things that I'm 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 driven by, and I've been driven by as a as a jazz scholar writing today, you know, is kind of trying to come to terms with exactly this issue, right? That that in some ways we can look back and say the golden age was this period, nineteen you know, the nineteen, like maybe what is it, nineteen fifty-five to sixty-five or something, and and that seems true. Right. I mean, a lot of the jazz recordings I want to listen to were made then. A lot of the jazz recordings I teach were made then. There is something about that period that really was remarkable. But also, like, I came up as a jazz fan in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I remain a jazz fan today. Um, And I think... I guess I kind of resist, actually, the idea that jazz has become a museum piece, um, which I think you hear, you can see it, and you know, people write about this sometimes. You can hear people complain about it. You know, oh, jazz is just, you know, just repertory, and it's not, it's not, you know, new. And, and so I kind of wanted to ask, like, here's a case. Here's an example. Like, the, the top-selling album of the decade probably w- had been recorded in 1958. Um, and how, how come there's not a new release from that period that has the same kind of draw? Um, and so you know, is this something where nostalgia is just what's what's pushing jazz consumption nowadays? And people who are listening are just listening through you know through these lenses of memory and and kind of listening to a golden age that that they can't imagine you know jazz ever having again? And to me, that's there's certainly something to it, right? That that there is a kind of measure of nostalgia and of a of a kind that's really doesn't go anywhere, doesn't push us anywhere. In some repertory pro- projects, and in some, uh, you know, in the fact that reissues tend to be the thing that basically keeps jazz recording afloat economically. But I also think. Like there's actually a really vibrant jazz scene. I I you know I go hear people play and I think they're playing amazing music, and and much of it is is really in dialogue with the tradition and dialogue with the history of the music. Um, so it's it's maybe nostalgic in a more positive way to my mind at least. It's nostalgic in a way that you know it's looking back at the past. It's it's you know it, it loves its past. Jazz loves its past, but uses it often. I mean, here jazz musicians use it to push forward, right? To imagine what, what's the next thing, what better, how can we make this, you know, how can we use that past to make even better music, even more interesting music, new music, new stuff that's, you know, that's really pushing, um, in interesting directions and, and, and still really enjoyable to listen to, um, really appealing and, and, and accessible even, and, you know, at times, often even. Um, so that, I guess, is why I wanted to sort of talk about what what is nostalgia because I don't I don't want to, um, you know, let critics who say jazz is just nostalgia have the last word on that thing because I think um, I think it's always been more complicated than that. I think mean, memory and and you know jazz has loved its history for a long time. Um, And, you know, I I think I say in the book somewhere, like, you know, there's a there's a piece um, like from from the
0: 1960s in a jazz Mm -hmm.
1: journal asking, is jazz dead? I think, well, you know,
0: this isn't a new question is what you're saying.
1: The answer is no. Right. And just because we love old jazz doesn't mean jazz is dead.
0: It doesn't mean it's
1: become a museum piece. I think actually new jazz relies on the fact that we love old jazz in order to keep it actually a living tradition.
0: If you're a moldy fig, it doesn't mean you're moldy or the jazz was moldy at the time.
1: Yeah, um, right, absolutely.
0: It it occurred to me that you could almost do a, a screenplay, what Woody Allen did for literature at Midnight in Paris. You could do the same for jazz, couldn't you? That, that, yeah, that every every previous era you want to oh these guys could really play if you really want to hear it you go you keep going back I I, I think in the Iliad Nestor said you think you guys are tough you should have seen the guys I fought yeah. you know so yeah. we're we're always going back and 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 looking to yeah. these golden ages but I, I thought it was a wonderful discussion that that you had in there I'm glad you glad you put it in there. So what did, you, what did you learn from this when you did these close readings of these pieces and looked at the context of the concert in the time and then the release half, half a century later? What did you grow to appreciate about Monk and grow to appreciate about, appreciate about Coltrane in looking at this? How did it change your view of, of them as players and, and their contributions to, to jazz?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, it's funny to say, like, I actually think I got to know... I I mean, I've I've played Monk's Tunes for a long time, and I know them reasonably well, but I got to know them much, much better through the process of the close reading, and I I actually came to find that I I appreciated them more. I think they're funny. I think they're really... they're, They're odd in ways that I didn't even quite recognize, and they're also, like, a really really like a monument to the tradition, in a sense, um, of writing pop tunes to play jazz on. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I came to really appreciate that, in a sense. I came um, to have a sense of a clearer sense of, of um, you know, of Coltrane as a young player. Um, I, as I said, I think I've really known him as an older player much better, and I haven't really listened that much to him as a young player. I came to, to a, a deep appreciation, actually, of um, of him as somebody who was always exploring, right? Who was who was just looking for something, looking for a way to make it better, for, to make it new. Um, I really hear that in these, and that I, I appreciated. Um, I came actually came to have a a, a a kind of deep appreciation for Shadow Wilson who I'd always known was a, a significant player and somebody who played with monk, but I hadn't really listened to him closely. And I, I think he's doing um really tasteful stuff on a lot of these. He's kind of holding things together when when time gets a little funny. Um and he's playing, you know, fills that just routinely again and again seem kind of perfect. Um, so that's, that's neat to hear. It's nice to just appreciate a a player who's, I mean, it's just, these are subtle pleasures. Um, and certainly not ones that make him, him, you know, unique. He didn't come up with a new feel or whatever that, you know, some drummers have done, but, but he's just, it's just really solid, beautiful playing. And I, I know that's what Monk appreciated about him. And so, you know, knowing that kind of helped me appreciate him too. Um, I do feel like I have actually a much bigger, better appreciation for jazz concerts as as such um, than I've had before writing this thing. I, like a lot of jazz fans, probably was a little bit, I looked down my nose a little bit at the concert setting, concert hall setting, and would have usually thought, like, uh, if I can hear somebody in a club, I'm really happy about that, but I don't necessarily want to go sit in a concert hall and hear jazz. I'm not sure I think that's the best setting for it. and I, I guess I still kind of feel that way. But taking the time to really look at the history of the jazz concert as a phenomenon, um, I, I think I kind of better appreciate why jazz musicians have at times really liked playing concert settings um, in the ways that that gives them some opportunities that nightclubs actually don't offer, and some, some go that nightclubs don't always offer. Um, and Uh, you know, I started to sort of hear the concert and thus hear concerts in general a little differently um, in terms of kind of what do I expect musicians are trying to do in that concert hall setting. Um, So that also, you know, to me, that was a real nice... And I just actually also... I hadn't... I actually hadn't realized how... how much jazz... Uh, was played in, in American concert halls, not just European ones, but American concert halls. Um, really, throughout its history, uh, you know, they're the big ones that always, as a historian, I have in my mind. Right, so the the Paul Whiteman Aeolian Hall concert, or the the um, uh, Benny Goodman Carnegie Hall concert, or the Spirituals to Swing concert, I mean, those kinds of big early concerts. But actually, if you look through the pages of the New York Times. Um, in, you know, in the 40s and 50s, you can see pretty regular concert performances, actually, um, that, that that you know, Carnegie Hall was not a stranger to jazz um, by the time Monk was doing this in 58, and um, uh, you know, other concert halls as well, uh, so Town Hall, for instance, where Monk had Concerts, um, you know, actually, jazz was shown in those in those settings, in those venues with some regularity, and I think to me that's a that was a little bit eye opening and and you know helped me kind of appreciate that a bit. Yeah,
0: it's so interesting because so many of the other authors that I've interviewed for this Oxford Studies in Recorded Jazz have shared similar ex- experiences and feelings that they've really gotten to know the players. And it's kind of a non-judgmental, open-ended, kind of almost non-academic response. You know, they become even bigger fans and open to new things. It it was obviously very rewarding for them to do what they did. And it's great to, to hear that because I think these books aren't just the province of an academic audience. I think people would really get a lot from the way the authors talk about these players, you know, with a real sense of affection and I think uh, yeah. a sense of awe. I think that's
1: great. Yeah, no, that makes me really happy that that comes, comes across. I Look, I think, I hope all of my work is like that, actually, right? I, I didn't become a jazz scholar because I was a scholar first, right? I became a jazz scholar because I was a fan. frankly, right? I'm a musician and I am still, but I love this music. I love it. I love it. I love these guys. And I, you know, the more I learn about it, the more I love it, for sure. And I hope, you know, that's, I mean, to me, that's what, that's what, you know, jazz history ought to do. It, it, You know, I mean, I think there's some big, there's some important things also about it as history and being able to talk about like, what really is the, the contribution of this um, this group of artists to American history and American cultural, you know, cultural history. I do think that's really important, um, and it's very serious. But also, I, I never want to lose track of the, the, you know, lose sight of the fact that, like, they were great musicians and, and what people, the reason they were able to make some kind of, broader contribution. The reason this music meant so much to so many people is that it was really great music
0: first. Well, it certainly comes through, and it it certainly gave me uh a A much greater appreciation of it. You can hear it of its own accord without any context, and it'll still take you to amazing places. But with the way you point things out and the close readings and whatever, it's almost like a a tour guide through the Amazon rainforest. You know, there's so much in there that you you need to have somebody to, to point these things out. And I think you really really do a good job with it. And so I really encourage people to. To get it and read it, I, I think they'll 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 really be turned on to a, a great experience in jazz.
1: That's cool. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate well,
0: that. Well, you bet. You're obviously working on something new. So tell us what your new projects are right now, Gabriel.
1: Sure. Um, I, what else am I doing right now? I'm actually I'm. Working on, hopefully finishing soon, a book about um, Tom Waits, actually, so the uh, pop musician, singer-songwriter, and and all-around weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You're part of your neck of the woods up there in Redwood. Yeah, that's right.
0: Wasn't he the guy swallowing the... The Bugs in, was it in Dracula, didn't, uh, am I, am, yes. am I yes. out, of, out of line Renfield. here that I saw him do that in the Atlas <laughs> Renfield? Well, oh, I think uh, that's right I think the Boomer audience will enjoy uh, a book on Tom Waits very much and I introduce know, so a whole new he, generation.
1: He's cool because he's got some deep connections, actually, to the L.A. jazz scene. So a lot of the uh-huh. fashion guys on his albums... Um, the guys in these bands over the years have been jazz musicians so there's a real jazz kind of um, component to what it is that he's done over the years so that's fun and then I, I actually also do research um, in Australia and Papua New Guinea with indigenous musicians if you can imagine um, and I'm working on a project that I'm calling the Black Pacific that looks at um, their relationships with African-American music, which has also been actually pretty substantial. So i work with a blues musician who's an Aboriginal woman from North Queensland uh, who, who has hooked up with, you know, connected with, with um, Taj Mahal and, and the, um, uh, oh, you know, various kind of American musicians over the years. And I look at um, doing some work with, with women who were, uh, in a, a soul girl group called the Sapphires in the 1960s, and I'm um, looking at at, at African American sailors and soldiers in in World War II in that part of the world. Um, I'm looking at some some connections with reggae, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh's tours and so forth. So, um, lots of lots of good stuff there that also connects in some ways with the the um, American musical kind of story and history.
0: Well, you're going to need about four or five lifetimes, I can, I can tell. Oh, my to, God. To be able to look into all these fascinating projects. But uh, thank God people are, are doing it. So uh, I really wish you, you good luck on that.
1: Yeah, cool. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to New Books in Jazz with Doc Stall. Our guest today was Gabriel Solis, who discussed his new book, Thelonious Monk Quartet with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall published by Oxford University Press 2013 Next time on New Books and Jazz we'll talk with Duncan Reed about his new book Cal Jader, The Life and Recordings of the Man Who Revolutionized Latin Jazz For New Books and Jazz, this is Doc Stull